That sound is the sound of victory. The joy as Manchester City's open-top bus parade makes its way through a rain-soaked crowd in the city centre. Manchester did what it does best this week. It parted and rained. Oh boy, did it rain. This is the Manchester Weekly from the mill. Hello there, welcome to this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly from the Mill with me, Daryl Morris, and in the Mill's newsroom, the Mill's editor, Yoshi Herman. Hello there, Yoshi. Hey, how's it going? Going very well. Happy birthday to (laughs) the Mill. Happy birthday to the Mill. Three years old, Yoshi. Yeah, it's a toddler. (laughs) <laughs> it is. It's. It's. Uh, do you know what? This is when the teeth start coming through and the I tantrums kick it. up. I actually googled it, and apparently it's not. Apparently, you go toddler is like when you turn one until you turn three. When you turn three, you're a child. Oh right. Okay. So the middle is a child, and we celebrated at a really fun event at um, uh, Deansgate Muse. Uh, yeah, a couple of days ago, um, Julie Hesmondash was the like the the host. And, and I spoke about starting the mill. We had a good like conversation with readers about a, a topic that we're working on. So yeah, we've had a we've had a fun uh, celebration. Nice, excellent. Well, congrats, my friend, uh, from that little cafe, that little greasy spoon in Charlton, uh, all the way up to an event with Julie Hesmondalsh. Lovely stuff. Nicely done. Um, all right. Well, we've got quite a bit of business to get into uh, this week. Before we do, though, a nod, Yoshi, to a sponsor. We've got a sponsor of this week's podcast. Yeah, this week's episode of the Manchester Wheatley is sponsored by the Manchester Museum. Um, now, they have been sponsoring some of our newsletters, and the reason is they are trying to get a message across about their role, I think, like what they're doing now. And I think like it's encapsulated by this New York Times article that was written about Manchester Museum quite recently. Um, the headline was, a museum pivots to become an empathy machine, right? It's kind of like a um, really, really good headline. And the story basically reports on Manchester Museum being an organization that's gone from like displaying fascinating objects and obviously it still does that. It still has the toads and it still has the dinosaurs and it still has the mummies. But it's gone from just doing that to being an organisation that thinks more broadly about its role as a place that can help people to take action. So they're kind of like, they want to be more proactive. Um, alongside their amazing exhibits, they want to help people to do things in Manchester. And so they've got this new area called the Top Floor. It's a co-working hub for people who want to make a difference in the city. So they've got environmental groups, they've got local artists, they've got a specialist college for neurodivergent young people. Lots of little organisations. There's an organisation that helps people to recycle things instead of throwing them away. So you can kind of see how they've got, like, they're like, we are a well-known organisation, we've got this extra bit of space, we're going to try and basically use it for good. And the aim is to create a space, basically, for the people of Manchester to learn, to share ideas, to build community. Um, and that's that's a really interesting thing. Like, that's just not what you'd expect from a museum. Um, and they've got a new social justice manager, which is someone who's kind of really thinking about all these different issues. So they're, they're today's sponsor, and they're getting a message across about, like, something that they're doing that is actually, like, yeah, surprising. It's very different from what you'd expect. Mm. Um, and given that they started as this kind of Victorian museum with lots of colonial objects, it's obviously like a very interesting direction. 
Yeah, very much so. And what I really enjoyed, I would highly recommend that you go back and listen to our episode mm. that we did uh, from there, from their opening. And we kind of had a bit of, we got a bit of a, a bit of a tour, didn't we, around the uh, the museum from various different curators and, mm. um, and and gallery bosses. And it was it was really interesting. I got a bit of a trip around the uh, Chinese culture uh, gallery, which is great actually and exactly what you kind of you would you would hope it to be and it's, it's also you know it's also very um rich in detail you know like it really gives you a proper the proper backstory of the things that that, that are in there um and where they came from and to, for you to sort of really properly understand you know it's so, so often you go to a museum and you look mm. at something and it's shiny and it's interesting and it sort of tells you a bit of its sort of rough story or whatever but, but i think that the, the trouble that they've gone to uh, to properly apply the, the correct version of history uh, to the things that they are showing, mm. I think is really admirable. And it really stands out in your experience of being in that museum. It stands out in your experience of having a look through the artefacts that they've got on display. And it's also got you know a bit of tape, which is critical, uh, a bit of an artefact that's critical of the, the Chinese regime as well, mm. um, which was really interesting and just a very interesting a truthful dynamic that it adds to the gallery um, I thoroughly enjoyed it I would go every day if I could <laughs> one of those you could probably actually just visit most days uh, and still stumble across something new <laughs> um, so thanks to uh, our sponsors this week Manchester Museum and you can listen to that episode that we did from uh, the Manchester Museum in your podcast feed just by scrolling back a little bit um, okay um, Yoshi I hate to tell you this, and you're going to hear what I'm about to say, I'm afraid, but Manchester is blue, my friend. Uh, Manchester City won the Champions League over the weekend, achieving that tantalising uh, treble that they've been shooting for. Um, Yoshi, uh, you went to the parade on Monday, didn't you, um, uh, in the city centre? As somebody who is a, a, a Manchester United fan, how did that feel? <laughs> Well yeah, done. So I, I wasn't sort of wearing blue bucket hat and like waiting for hours, but I just happened to be having a drink with a couple of people on um, Old Bank Street, and we just walked down Old Bank Street and we hit Cross Street, and it was the bus was literally going past as we got there. Like Molly, who is a Man City fan, was like really excited, and I think at the beginning of the podcast you heard the video of like her watching the bus go past, and 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 like the Harland was at the front. Um, who's the who's the spa, who's the Portuguese centre back Diaz? Um, he was like he was topless. Like I think he was holding the FA Cup trophy. I couldn't see he was holding the Champions League one. But the energy, like it was such a kind of Manchester scene, in the sense of like banging music, pe- like real disco vibe, um, people going absolutely nuts, rainful. It literally rained on the parade, but like not in a bad way. Like it was kind of like it was almost apocalyptically rainy like people it gets so rainy sometimes that people almost just love it you know it's just sort of like absolutely covering you and like all the players were loving it the people on the street were loving it i have to say even though i'm a united fan i sort of briefly really loved it as well because it's just <laughs> absolute unmitigated joy from everyone um around going through the city and um and yeah i actually thought it was uh, it was quite a magnificent moment Okay, well, we can chat now to uh, two people who've been right at the heart of it for the last couple of years, really. Uh, We're joined on the podcast this week by Sam Lee, who is Manchester City correspondent for The Athletic. Sam, hello there. Hello, good afternoon. Thank you for being with us. Um, And David Mooney, who is a podcast host and a producer, also works at Five Live. um, And together, they are the host of Man City, uh, the Man City podcast, Let Me Talk. David, hello, welcome. 
Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, real pleasure. Thank you both for being here. Um, Sam, I'll start with you because I think just before we uh, before we started recording, I asked you how you were, and you said that you were still a bit exhausted after yeah, the weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I am catching up on sleep, but I'm certainly not caught up yet. Yeah, I could definitely have a nap this afternoon. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, so you were you were there, obviously. You were you were in yeah. amongst it. How how was it for you? It was it was the absolute best time. Um, it was just great. Like Istanbul as a city is fantastic. Like, but in a way, the perfect city. It's a perfect city for a final. But um, well, the setting anyway. But I mean, the actual stadium getting out to it was a nightmare. Like, basically every single fan had an absolute nightmare getting in and out. Mm. It was a. It, that was a major like shambles. But the city itself, and I think once people, well, as long as they weren't at the stadium or trying to get to the stadium or get away from it, everyone had an amazing time. And that was the exact same experience that I had. I think a lot of people ended up going, you know, for a few days um, because ironically it made it cheaper with the flights or whatever. And it just meant that Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, maybe even Monday night, everyone was just having a good time. And obviously after winning it, that kind of increased tenfold as well. And everyone I know who's been a City fan for years, they just honestly just, they had the best time. And yeah, to be fair, even as a reporter, so did I. What has it it meant for City fans this particularly because they've obviously had a lot of success in recent years having had not much success for decades you should ask Dave yeah well, well maybe I'm moving over to Dave Dave I think you're speaking <laughs> to us from your car aren't you I am yeah I uh, I, I got caught short <laughs> <laughs> what's it what's it meant meant to City fans what have you seen in the last few days it's honestly it's still even now a few days on it's really hard to put into words just kind of what it has meant to so many people um there are there are people who have seen this football club in the absolute pits in the depths of like the worst ever state and they've been on a journey that's taken kind of 23 24 years since then to the absolute pinnacle of of world football and they're they're just a mess there's so many people who have just kind of crumbled to the ground like in pieces based on like the whole roller coaster of emotions that they've that they've gone through and like i'm i'm still at the point now where i'm not entirely sure that i believe it all and can kind of like under, can even comprehend what's happened over the last few days and it's really it's a really strange position to be in because i didn't think i needed it i didn't think i needed to see that and to to kind of feel mm. that because i've i've had like since the takeover and especially under guardiola i've had the mm. absolute best time of my life mm. and i didn't think i needed like the crowning glory of of winning the champions league and and kind of that cementing it all but i i was saying to sam on one of the recent podcasts like, I literally feel like I've seen it all. There's nothing that can be done now that I haven't seen. And but I'm that, happy with that. That was actually going to be one of my questions that I was going to ask Sam, which is this Champions League has been such a goal for the Man City ownership and for this team and for this manager for, for a few years now. And it eluded them and it eluded them and now they've done it. What is the next goal? Like, how? What? what is their next big motivation in the next five years, like, is, is that clear? Yeah, I think I think it's just to maintain the position they're in. Mm. Fortunately, you know, what Guardiola actually said he's got the feeling the job is done, which is normally the kind of thing you say when yeah. you're leaving. But in the same breath, he said, you know, we'll go away for the summer, disconnect, and then come back and mm. and try and do it again. So 
it, it is you know from Guardiola's point of view it will be to try and main, maintain the levels that they've mm. that they've achieved and in fairness I mean look obviously they've won it now so mm. once it's won there can be this kind of feeling where everyone can breathe and relax and that sounds normal but if you relax in football then you're not going to stay at that top level so that is the challenge but they have been at a high level for the last two three seasons anyway two years ago they got to the final and lost mm. it lost in the FA Cup semi-final but that was a very similar season they basically came down to two games being different last season they got to the FA Cup semi-final and the Champions League semi-final and went out obviously late against Real Madrid that was a two-game difference you know it's not like they've been massively different to it so obviously now they've won it mm. yeah okay the the main challenge is to recuperate that energy and desire and do it again but it's just to stay at those levels maintain those levels and okay next year I don't know, maybe they only win the Premier League, which would still be amazing. <laughs> if yeah. maybe they don't win anything and, it, and it's close, maybe, you know, they just have a season where everything kind of deflates a bit. I don't know, but as long as Guardiola's there, they're going to, I'd imagine they'll stay very, very close to these levels. And then beyond that, the challenge is to get back to those levels with a new coach, but that'll probably be in a couple of years' time. Mm. And, and Guardiola's not expected to be around for years and years now, is he? Is it, I've seen people talk about 2024. Is that roughly what your thinking is? No, another two years, I think. Okay, another two, another two years, and and presumably with quite a big financial boost. I mean, they win the league every year, so that isn't exactly extra money. But like winning the winning the treble has apparently brought extra cash in. What's your understanding of the sort of financial boost they'll get from this? Yeah, two hundred and ninety-four million, I think it is, from all the prize money. Um, so yeah, that's that's obviously huge. I think they might need to invest a little bit in the squad this summer. There's quite a few, yeah, not quite a few, but there's three, four, possibly five players who have made a big contribution this season and in previous seasons who could leave um, and some of those are in areas where they haven't got a load of other options anyway so yeah they're, they're, it may be a case of reinvesting quite a bit of that um, trophy prize revenue mm. uh, into new players in the summer and again, but again going back to how to stay at the level and regain that hunger if, if the squad's new and they haven't got the feeling of just having won the treble but yeah. they're hungry to kind of do it again then that would help Mm, yeah, and and David, speaking of money, um, obviously winning the treble brings up um, the, the conversation about money and the amount of money that City have spent, where that money's come from, the allegations against them from the Premier League around financial fair play, etc. Uh, that has been, I, I was perhaps surprised actually about how much of a part of the conversation that's been. Some of it perhaps sour grapes, some of it legitimate concern about the game. Um, so far as the City fans are concerned, David. Does that is that something that's sort of on their mind that gets mentioned? Does it does it sort of taint the victory in any way? Uh, no, um, I think I think it gets mentioned among City fans quite ironically in the sense of like it feels like everybody brings it up um, and it feels like it's been a constant kind of reminder throughout this entire process. Um, but I like City fans in general, and I can't speak for them all, but I can speak for me and what my friends and kind of the people I know kind of how how we all talk um i just don't care it's like nobody's suggesting that what's happened to city is a fairy tale i mean ironically you could probably make the argument that it is you know a rich Mm. benefactor's come along and uh Mm. you know turned a pauper into a prince that's quite a fairy tale (laughs) story um but like in the general sense like nobody's suggesting that it's a rags to riches story of, of hard work and hard graft and nothing else um, so I think I, I think City fans are very well aware of, of, of kind of the money that it's taken to get City there. Um, and you look at, at what went before and other teams spent a lot of money and that's that's that. It's just kind of the way the world is. 
Um, so I don't think I, I think generally fans are quite relaxed about it all. They I, I think there's a there's a good portion of City fans, a sizable number, who just back the club to the hilt, and you know they look at the Premier League charges charges and go. You know, nothing's proven yet. We'll wait until we'll wait until it's see. I don't think they. I, I don't think they're. Um, the, I, I think it's kind of like made up charges against us. There's another portion of fans who will say again, "Well, wait and see." If the club has been found to be cheating, then they've been cheating. But what effect has it actually had on the pitch? You know, players. You know, players and, and managers of, of years gone by have been paid more than the, than they've been announced, and like that doesn't change. That doesn't take away from the fact that Guardiola's team now has had to go out and win those games. Um, so I think I think a lot of City fans are quite easily able to distance themselves from the the mm. sort of the tainted conversation. And listen, there are opposition fans who will who will just want to see it that way because that it makes their lives easier. So I yeah. think I, I think in a weird way, kind of everybody's happy. Um, opposition fans get to say it's tainted, and City fans get to enjoy it. Yeah. And, and, and can sorry. I just ask, David? Sorry. Can I, can, can I just ask on, on that note? Because we've talked, and actually, we've talked a lot on this podcast before about uh, about the boom and bust of football, and, and we, we've seen that in some of the stories, like Barry, obviously, in our patch. Uh, I'm a Bolton fan. We've been through it in recent years. Uh, Wigan are now experiencing it as well. Just on last week's episode, we were talking about the contrasting fortunes of Wigan uh, struggling and Barry uh, trying to find a way back. Um, you know, football comes with a lot of boom and bust, doesn't it, David? D- does it concern you about the future? You know, that that it, all it takes is somebody getting bored or the next person in Guardiola not quite working or the finances not quite stacking up or, or whatever else and, and all of a sudden you find yourself on, on, on shaky ground. Does that sort of boom and bust rhythm of football concern you? Uh, not really, because we've kind of been there already. Um, like I, the, there are stories from '99. I've done a, I've done a lot of work around the team with the '19 uh, the around the '99 team, um, and a lot of them talk about how there were conversations behind the scenes about had City not been promoted in '99, it might not exist anymore. Now, whether or not that's true, I don't know. But you know, they were hemorrhaging money back in the day, and and you know things were really quite, quite sketchy at times. So like it. The future doesn't concern me in the slightest in whether, like, City these days are a quite a sustainable business model. They're a successful team. You just heard from Sam the amount of money that, that winning these competitions has brought in. Um, if they fall away from the top, I don't think they're going to fall very far unless it's a series, and I mean a, a real series of, of dreadful mismanagement. Look at, look at teams like United, for instance, who... I know their their commercial power off the pitch has been a lot stronger than City's for a long time, but you know they've continually got things wrong on the pitch and off the pitch for a good ten years or so now, and they're still in the conversation of of, of regular Champions League qualifiers and and kind of, I mean if you believe United managers of the last few years, title challenges occasionally, so I, I don't I, I think City have kind of almost elevated themselves beyond the point of there being problems in future. Um, there are always problems for, for the lower end of the pyramid and if City was still dogging around the third tier, I would probably be quite concerned that that was it. They were never going to get out of it and, and things were never going to change. Um, and I have I, had, I actually have quite a lot of sympathy for, for teams that are struggling around uh, outside the Premier League and, and kind of lower down the leagues you go. I live in Stockport. I'm not far from Stockport County. It's, you know, that them as a, as a club have, have had all kind of 
real troubles that they that they hopefully seem to be coming out of at the moment. And you look at, at the the whole structure of football, and it goes back to what I was saying about about the money with uh, with the city fans. You kind of you, you kind of accept that unless you get some sort of rich benefactor, you ain't in the conversation near the top of the table. And that's why city fans generally feel pretty lucky to be in the conversation these days because it's only what. 20 years ago we're looking 15 years ago we're looking at, at, at results and going this is probably as good as it gets survival in the mm. Premier League and maybe a decent cup run but probably never getting to Wembley most football teams and most football fans that's their that's their life and we've got to experience something that is so much kind of more elevated and so much so much more successful than that and most teams yeah. don't get that in the slightest mm. yeah can't take that away from me um sam can i can I just ask you just, just finally um because we're going to talk a little bit more in a moment about the the development around east manchester that uh, manchester city and its ownership have pursued um how how much of a part of manchester city limited so city football group is that that sort of um, real estate development around the, the the football club around the stadium. How much is it linked to the club itself? Yeah, how, how, how much is it a sort of a part of that business? You know, what kind of what kind of role does it take in the business? Um, I've, I've no idea. I, I know that regeneration has has been facilitated through the relationship between um, the city of Manchester and you know Sir David Bernstein and investors from Abu Dhabi. Um, that that's it's definitely helped. I I know, in you know some of the ways that that that's helped and how it's helped. But um, in terms of Manchester City itself, I don't know. I, mean, I guess it one one good example is the music venue that's being built just outside the Etihad now. You know that's obviously, I would think you know that's going to benefit the people of Manchester. Another venue to go to. Um, it looks pretty impressive. There'll be I don't know more gigs, more shows going on around there. And you know that's directly part of the club. Um, in terms of you know apartment blocks and businesses and handcoats and stuff, I, I'm not entirely sure. Um, but if it wasn't for the ownership involvement in City, then it, I think I'm right in saying that. But far from an expert, I think I'm right in saying it wouldn't have happened. But how much it's like day to day at City, I'm not aware of any like particular roles. You know that anybody working for the club is having to say, "On okay, we need more housing developments here or whatever." Um, but like I say, in terms of the the new music venue, that that is kind of part of the club's remit. But no, beyond beyond that, with the housing and the like, the regeneration of you know Rudy's being in Ancoats, for example, I, I I think it's less direct than somebody at the club being responsible for it. Okay. Um, hey, it's been a pleasure to have you both on. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. The, the podcast is um, Let Me Talk. Uh, if you're a City fan, or frankly not, uh, yeah, it'd be interesting. All, it, it's such a big football story, isn't it, at the moment? Uh, really worth checking it out. Let Me Talk uh, with Sam and David. Thank you so much both for being with us. Yeah, thank you, guys. Cheers. Thank you very much. Don't forget, it's uh, it's lmtpod.com if you want to listen to it. Yeah. Nice. Good plug. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Yoshi, let's just dwell a little bit more on that development around City and um, the way that the story takes us from Manchester City on the pitch and around East Manchester. Mm. Yeah, so the backstory here is that there is this company called the Abu Dhabi United Group and their biggest asset is the football club. And the company is owned by Sheikh Mansour um, bin Zayed and he is a member of the Abu Dhabi royal family, 
And he's also, as I understand it, a UAE minister. And there is a strong suggestion, and it's been reported in documents before, that the Abu Dhabi government manages the accounts belonging to Abu Dhabi United Group. So there is a a fairly close link between the state and the company. Um, The Abu Dhabi United Group insists that it's it's entirely separate from from the government. So the, the big thing in Manchester is not only that they own the football club, it's that they've done a series of deals with Manchester City Council particularly in East Manchester. So this is not just directly around the Etihad Stadium, but but a bit further in. And I think the brand that people would know if they lived in East Manchester, because they might have seen it above doors of apartment blocks, or they might have friends who live in it, is the Manchester Life Group. It's actually technically the Manchester Life Development Company, but it's this joint enterprise between the council and the Abu Dhabi United Group. And they've built lots and lots of um, homes, so mainly apartment blocks. Now, that series of deals is controversial, partly because of the secrecy around it. The council simply hasn't been very transparent about the terms of the deal, but also because it's felt that the council handed over public land too cheaply. So the way The Guardian talked about it, based on research by an academic called John Silver, Dr. John Silver and, and some of his colleagues, the way The Guardian talked about it was um, one of the greatest cities in the world has sold itself to a senior figure in a brutal autocracy, not even for a good price. And um, the, the detail here is that um, the council was um, controlled the land and it allowed the land, the land to be sort of to go over to this this joint partnership on very very long leases, and it is very unclear whether the council has actually made any money from it. Now clearly they make money from getting more council tax, they make money from the city being wealthier and having more jobs and that kind of thing, but there's a strong feeling that the the terms were not very good for for the city council, and that if this deal was being done now in Manchester now, um, it would be done differently. However, you know when the deal was done. You know, it, it wasn't Manchester now, it was a different kind of city and there was less investment. So that's kind of an ongoing debate that you get about this topic. Okay, interesting. Um, and we will continue to have that debate because I think it's really worth us keeping an eye on that development and how it uh, develops. Elsewhere, Yoshi, this week, uh, we need to talk about HS2. Hooray! We need a little jingle for when we talk about HS2, maybe. Um, We've been hearing from Bev uh, Bev Craig, Manchester's um, uh, council leader, this week about that. What's she been saying? There's basically been a huge lobbying campaign to try to get the government to do HS2's approach into Manchester differently. So Bev Craig, the leader of the city council, Andy Burnham, the GM mayor, other local leaders, they've been in London... And they have been trying to get this kind of integrated underground station at Piccadilly built, which would be really, really expensive, but which they say would be a much better option um, than the overground alternatives. With you know, there's been all this talk of concrete stilts uh, blighting the city, hampering growth, um, using up valuable land that could be used for other things that, that, that could be creating jobs. So they are really, really pushing it. It seems like one of the biggest strategic priorities for local leaders at the moment is to get this underground station built. And I think it's a fair argument, which is like London has had enormous um, infrastructure investments, um, most recently the Elizabeth Line, the Crossrail Line. Why shouldn't Manchester have a really expensive 
investment that will um, unclog um, some key routes and uh, that will mean that a lot more of the land, the, uh, the land that, that, that was going to be used for these concrete stilt routes um, would be available for other uses. Um, etc etc so Bev Craig has been saying that the overground station would require a huge concrete viaduct up to six tracks wide running from Ardwick uh, to Piccadilly um, cutting us way through communities so they're very anti the government's current plans the government says there isn't value for money in in building what what the Manchester leaders want so this thing is kind of um, is going on Right, okay. Uh, I read a really interesting long read in The Independent uh, over the weekend by John Stone, who wrote a piece about how the Eurostar trains were built to link Manchester and Paris um, and how that basically was was surrendered and just didn't, you know, didn't eventually, eventually didn't happen during its development in the late, late 80s and, and how there should have been, you should have been able to have got on a train in Paris and got off it in Manchester, uh, basically. And I think there was, a, there was also a plan to extend that further down to Madrid and Barcelona mm. uh, and Lisbon and Napoli and Rome and Milan um, and they didn't happen. So uh, these stories of transport infrastructures that should be reaching Manchester, never quite reaching Manchester, mm. aren't new, are they, really? We've had one of those before. Uh, really, I would, I would certainly uh, recommend that read. Really interesting. Um, um, let's move on, though, Yoshi, to um, a piece of local democracy reporting uh, that has given us a, a, a bit of an insight into homelessness, a story, of course, that has been big in Manchester, central to Manchester, Mayor Andy Burnham's uh, plans. We've got some more data. Yeah, so according to the Local Democracy Reporting Service, uh, the numbers of people living in temporary accommodation is falling. Uh, The new data shows the number of people living in all types of temporary accommodation across the city, this is Manchester, has dropped by 13% since the the end of 2022, which was when it peaked at 3,194 households living in temporary accommodation. The number of B&Bs used, and that is like B&B refers to any hotel accommodation being used, um, has also fallen. Um, they are claiming a 79.7% reduction in families housing that type of accommodation. I have to say, it's not our story. I'm quoting someone else's story. I would want to kind of probably look into that, given how the the figures in, 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 in this area sometimes need a bit more scrutiny, but that, that's what's being reported. Uh, mill readers will obviously remember that we did loads on this topic, um, that we showed they were using an inappropriate amount of, of B&B, unsafe conditions, etc. Um, so Manchester City Council seems to be making a little bit of um, a, a little bit of progress here. Um, the current situation is that the City Council has a target of no families in B&Bs for longer than six weeks, and it wants to hit this um, by the end of June. And Joanna Midgley, who's the deputy council leader and the one who's in charge of this area, says. It's particularly pleasing that we've made such progress in cutting the use of B&B accommodation for families, which we know is always unsuitable and which we have made it a priority to reduce. So the utter, utter mess that Manchester's been in on homelessness, not just because it has more homelessness pressure, but because it's been really bad at dealing with that pressure and responding to it, fairly inept in certain ways, sometimes not even understanding the data when you put it to them on a call. they seem to be trying to unwind those errors and 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 improve the situation. So, um, those are the latest numbers. Okay. Uh, finally, this week, uh, a lovely bit of news to end on from Danny Cole, formerly of this parish, of course, and a bit of an update on a story that she was pursuing. Yeah. So you remember she wrote this story. Danny wrote this really beautiful story called "A Death Unseen," and it was about a man called Tony Doran, who had died. 
and no friends and family were there to go to his funeral and no one was there to pay for his headstone. He basically died alone, he'd had mental health problems and um, Danny went to his funeral um, with some other people who didn't know him um, because there was a local um, funeral practitioner celebrant who was kind of saying, well, you know, I'm doing this funeral for someone who doesn't have any friends, could people come along? And Danny wrote an amazing piece. Um, And I think like one of the more emotional moments of reporting that was when we were in the office together and I asked her about like where he would be buried and she said, well, he was on benefit, so he probably wouldn't get a headstone, he wouldn't have a grave. And um, I remember that, we were in the office together, and it felt like very, very sad and like very bleak that this man who not only died without any connections in the world would also just kind of slip into the ground unnoticed or unmarked. Um, so Danny started a little fundraiser, a bunch of mill members, um, you know, chipped in five quid or 10 quid or 20 quid to get the headstone. And then Danny got um, the Southern Cemetery or someone at the Southern Cemetery to put it in. And they've just told us, they told her it's been erected. Um, Danny said it's been a long wait, seven months, hampered by COVID backlogs. But I'm so glad that his story could have a happier ending. The headstone was funded by the generosity of Millers. I hope it can help any relatives or friends find Tony when they want to pay their respects. So, yeah, so now that this man who dies alone um, has a headstone and he's, like, got a permanent little spot in the Southern Cemetery, I think it's quite moving, really. Very much so, yeah. And uh, would like to take this opportunity to point you in the direction of that uh, piece. You can read that on the Mill website, manchestermill.co.uk. Danny's final piece for the Mill, which was utterly beautiful, wonderfully written, a heck of a story, with a nice little update as well uh, this week. Manchestermill.co.uk is where you go to read that and the rest of the Mill's journalism. Okay, almost it from us for this week, Yoshi, but um, what are you working on? What's going on? What's in your mind at the moment? We've got a great piece coming out by students at the University of Manchester. They all work for the student newspaper, The Mancunian, and um, got to know them recently when I went to one of their... I I gave a talk um, to them about journalism, and I've known the editor, Ella Robinson, for ages because she's written a piece for us, and and she's a great young journalist. And a couple of our recent stories have actually had help from a couple of those journalists. But anyway, now they're writing a piece about what it's been like to be at uni during the pandemic. And it's so interesting. It's not just about studies and fees and housing. It's about, like, relationships and parties and mental health and um, friendships and, and, like, toxic dynamics between people created by being in a flat all day. Like, one of them described it as a... Like, we were thrown into a huge social experiment. Um, See what would happen when thousands of young people were confined to, like, live in, you know, tiny groups and told they weren't allowed to go outside and stuff. It's going to be such an interesting piece. So that's our own weekend read. Excellent. Okay, look forward to that. Manchestermill.co.uk to read that. And we also give you a bit of a nod for someone to do in and around Greater Manchester over the next uh, couple of days. Yoshi, what is on your radar then, my friend? I'm going to go for the Dragon Boat Festival at Salford Keys, which apparently is a lot of fun. Um, and uh, that's, yeah, that's happening at Salford Keys. When is it happening? And why, why am I saying it's happening this weekend and not knowing when it's happening? Uh, yeah, I didn't know it's happening this weekend. It is. That's the 17th. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Um, you do and um, you do your one and then I'll find the time as you're doing your one okay um, my one is Hans Zimmer uh, live which is uh, happening again this weekend at the Manchester Arena um, I feel like I feel like we sort of 
constantly on tour with Hans Zimmer music. <laughs> uh, but he uh, he is back and he's going to be at the Manchester Arena and it's obviously some utterly epic pieces of music, uh, some of the most iconic soundtracks, things that have probably soundtracked moments of your lives um, and, um, uh, you know, and some of your favourite films. Uh, and you can see them in an arena. There's something really special actually about such a big, you know, seeing songs you're so familiar with or pieces of music you're so familiar with performed uh, in in a stadium or an arena full of people who are also appreciating it at the same moment it's pretty electric actually so I would highly recommend that you see Hans Zimmer nice when's the boat just to come back to the boat thing it doesn't have a time it just says 17th and 18th which is Saturday and Sunday so just go along Okay, good stuff. Uh, Thank you for being with us on this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly from The Mill. We're back in your podcast feed. Same time next week, more quality journalism like this can be found at manchestermill.co.uk. But for now, thank you.